You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Podcast. I am Lewis Kornfeld. Today I'm speaking with the great John O'Donnell. John, thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me, Lou. It's my pleasure. John is the creator of the Made Up Musical, which is about to enter its eighth year at the Magnet. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, we are very fortunate to be uh, coming on year number eight come yeah. January. Yeah. Made Up Musical has been, um, it's the only show on Magnet schedule that has kept its original slot for the last eight years. It's one of the three longest running shows at the theater, along with um, Only Behind Megawatt. And it's up there with Junior Varsity, Hello Laser, and The Boss uh, uh, as the longest-running groups. And it's the only show to retain its spot. And we have a great deal of pride in, in being mentioned in that sentence. Like when I think about that, oh, Junior Varsity, The Boss, and Hello Laser, yeah. and the quality of those shows, yeah. that's, a, that's a source of pride for, for us. Well, it's also like connections to the early theater, too. Like one thing about all those groups is those were people who were all around at the very beginning of it. And... and um, it's sort of nice to have that sense of continuity of going all the way back. I feel the way about the musical too. So really quick, I just want to say that for anybody listening now, um, uh, there's a pretty thriving musical scene in New York city and, and it seems like that's taking place elsewhere around the country too. Uh, um, all of the three major theaters in New York have very strong, thriving musical programs. There's just a ton of indie musical groups playing everywhere. Queen Secret Improv Club has its own musical night. Like, it's a really big thing. Um, uh, and a lot of that can trace its lineage back to a handful of shows. Like, in the early days, you had Baby Wants Candy would come and visit periodically. Um, there was uh, the next big Broadway musical, I believe, and Made Up Musical were basically the ones that you had. So... Something that I think maybe people don't necessarily know is what is now a very thriving musical culture really has your show kind of at like the genetic roots of it. Like you guys are really in the DNA of it. Um, and I want to get into a little bit of the history of that as we talk because I'm super curious about the show. But but I want to talk a little bit about your history too. So um, uh, uh, where are you from originally? How did you get into the world of comedy? I'm from uh, East Northport which is in Suffolk County on Long Island. Mm. And uh, my parents had these old Bill Cosby uh, records. Uh, I started out as a child, and Bill Cosby is a very funny fellow, right? Mm -hmm. And once I could work the record player, I listened to those and was greatly affected by Cosby's work. To the point when I was about five years old, I would bring the speaker out to the patio where my cousins and aunts and uncles were, and I would do a lip-sync performance of Bill Cosby's routines. Uh -huh. um, my mother took my sister and I to Mount Airy Lodge. Uh, there's so many commercials for it. Up, oh, I, yeah. I believe it's in the Catskills. I'm All you exactly. have to bring is your love of everything. Okay. <laughs> that The commercials for that would play constantly during reruns of Three's Company when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I remember those commercials. So we actually went to beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. It's still in my head, like etched in of like what like sexy, elegant, grown up uh, leisure time is like is, is all intimately connected to Mount Airy Lodge. Oh, yeah. And then you get there and you realize I, <laughs> I cannot touch the carpet with my hand. This is... <laughs> going to get something. Um, but she bought this package where each night we went to see the entertainment. And the entertainment, uh, one night was a band. Three other nights it was a stand-up comedian. So I got to see these three different Catskill comics 
working. And it had a tremendous uh, effect on me at around the age 11 or 12 mm. of thinking, wow. And I, was, and I was looking at what they were doing and even then kind of analyzing the technique and, and really seeing the joy that a comedy show could bring to people. Mm. Um, and so humor became um, a real focus. Uh, I discovered uh, once we got HBO, um, like so many other people, George Carlin, and there was so much about his presentation and his ideas and such. I just became a, a George Carlin nut. How old were you at this point? Um, let's see. I bought the album A Place for My Stuff back when Models used to sell everything. So, <laughs> what, uh, so I bought that. I think I was in 10th grade uh-huh. when, I, when I bought it. But bef- before that, I would, I would get whatever recordings or tapes or, or you know, lobby to stay up late and watch The Tonight Show. Um, also a big fan of Robert Klein. Mm-hmm. And uh, around 10th grade, discovered Monty Python. You know, um, it's probably a very similar story. You know, Saturday Night Live, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and thought for the longest time that stand-up was in the future. Um, and at age 17, was able to get one of those five to 10-minute spots at uh, what's now gone, but a popular Long Island club called the East Side Comedy Club. And that was one of those open mic nights where – you know, friends from high school and I, we would bring like 40, 50 people and, you know, they'd pay their cover and two drink minimum. And we would get up and try and sort of find our way through this. Um, and I did some kind of song parody on the piano and, you know, did impressions and such. And don't even remember much of the kind of cobbled together act. Mm-hmm. Um, but then through college and uh, I would try and find open mic nights and and really try and find my voice. I had a chance meeting with George Carlin on the streets of Manhattan, and he was extremely um, uh, uh, supportive. And the main thing he said was that you need to find uh, people. He said that you can practice the violin by yourself, but a performer needs to find audiences. So any place you can get up to perform, go right ahead. I think I was pretty savvy enough, at least at that age, to notice, though, that Stand-up comedy was, and this is in the late 80s, becoming very quickly um, oversaturated, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, you had all these cable channels like A&E, and the producers realized to produce a comedy show, you just have to you know, get a room, get a microphone, get an audience, and 12 people. So what I started to notice was, in my opinion, a decline in the quality mm-hmm. of stand-up. Because you want to put a new face on. So the, the days of you know waiting 20 years to get your shot on The Tonight Show, you, you might have still had some of that. But these other shows were just putting stand-ups on all the time. And uh, a, a cable channel called The Comedy Channel came out. Another channel called Ha, which I believe became Comedy Central. I think the two of them fused together. Okay. Yeah. So it looked like you know, stand-up seemed to be very hard to get into. And it was around that time that uh, I was in college. I was at NYU, and friends had a taping to this show I'd never heard of called Whose Line Is It Anyway, which at the time was working out of, out of England. Mm-hmm. And I saw really good improvisation. Um, you know, I know there's a whole short-form, long-form debate and such, but I was like, oh, this is really something, and became aware of the Second City uh, became aware of Improv Olympic and became aware of Chicago City Limits in New York. And when I went and saw 
Chicago city limits for the first time, and it had taken me a while. My sister saw it and it told me how great it was, and a few years later, I finally ambled in there. Um, it dawned on me that if I could get into a show like this, I would get that needed stage time that George Carlin spoke about. Mm-hmm. Chicago City Limits at the time did six two-hour shows a week, and they had a cast of four or five people along with the accompanist. So I traded that between these clubs that were dying out and doing you know 10 minutes of comedy once a week uh, at an open mic night versus you know 12 hours of performing a week and began to put my energies into trying to get into that um, company. I, mm-hmm. I probably should mention that when Conan O'Brien's show first started, I got an internship there and I met um, Mike Myers outside. He was on Saturday Night Live and he had come down to try and recruit Adam West, who was a guest on Conan O'Brien to play Batman in a um, Saturday Night Live sketch the mm-hmm. next night. And so I got to watch them meet and shake hands. And Adam West was like 65 years old, but still the coolest looking guy. Yeah. And uh, it was a very interesting exchange because Mike Myers said, we'd like you to play Batman in this Justice League sketch tomorrow. And Adam West said, oh, I, I, I can't because different companies own the different um, sort of versions, mm-hmm. iterations of Batman. Right. And I'm tied to the one from the 60s TV show. And then Mike Myers said, oh, okay. And then West said, I could play Bruce Wayne, though. You know? <laughs> and I, I would have been vaporized on the spot because I wanted to shout out, let him play Bruce Wayne. You yeah. know, like, um, but in an off moment, and you weren't supposed to talk to anyone, I went up to Mike Myers and shook his hand and, and said I was very interested in studying improvisation. And he immediately said, then you need to go to Chicago and study with these two people, Sharna Halpern and Del Close. Mm-hmm. And then he said something very interesting. He said, and you need to give yourself a year to be pretty bad. Um, because your brain is learning how to do this. So be okay with being terrible for about a year. And I mentioned, what about this group in town called Chicago City Limits? And he said, well, they're they're pretty good, but just be careful of any place that just tries to teach you to be funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a cousin living in Chicago. Um, this is in the mid-'90s, and I went and visited him a few times with an eye toward uh, moving there. And Sharna Halpern and Del Close were very nice. They allowed me to sit in on their classes, and it was clear that – uh, something was going on there. I, I found out later just to what extent, you know, in the 90s of that group of Improv Olympic and the Annoyance and, and Second City uh, later on, uh, but ultimately ended up having to stay in New York because I, I couldn't afford mm-hmm. to, to move to Chicago. So uh, Chicago City Limits became the place where I thought, okay, this is going to be my Second City experience if, if I can get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and can you, so what did it entail to become involved with the company in Chicago City Limits? So can you, can you also, oh yeah, so what did it entail to become part of the company first? And then I want to get into, into the nature of the shows that they put up. To me, from what I could observe, um, and I started taking classes there in the mid to late nineties, it looked like, uh, you, you wanted to take the classes and then eventually, uh, find a way to get into this class, uh, called performance workshop where you would put on, I think, two shows over an eight-week period. 
And then basically keep your eye out for these auditions that they would often have to their touring company. Mm -hmm. Um, The touring company would go around the country and do a variety of shows and in any number of venues, mainly colleges and these small theaters in these towns around the country. And then they had the resident company, which was doing the six shows a week in New York and would occasionally do another gig outside of town or or some kind of corporate gig and such. So – uh, the way I saw to get there was really to start at the bottom. I, I was interning to pay for classes, so uh, selling programs, selling tickets, working in the, the bistro, uh, cleaning the bathrooms, uh, getting the actors anything they needed. Um, and I did that at the time with uh, with a, a guy named Paul Shear, who has uh, you know, moved on to a number of, of projects. Mm-hmm. And the two of us would kind of flip a coin to see whose job it would be to sit in the back of the theater and watch the show while the other guy was out front, you know, kind of manning the the lobby and such. Mm. So we would take turns doing that. And I, since my focus was to get into it, I was trying to find a way to break down what I would need to be able to do in order to, to do the show. Mm-hmm. And over time, um, I did performance workshop and I feel I was able to distinguish myself enough there. Um, I struck up a friendship with one of the best performers I've ever met, a guy named John Cameron Telfer, who has, even to this day, um, and sometimes it's hard to explain, like if if you're hanging out with funny people and something happens, like let's say a horse runs down the street, the the funny people are going to try and take that stimulus and come up with the right line or Mm -hmm. the right comment. Um, John had absolutely no filter between the stimulus and the line. And I've never met anyone like that, just that sort of instantly creative. And uh, that was someone who I really wanted to work with. And luckily I got to be friends with him, and he became an advocate of mine. So they had these touring company auditions. Um, I eventually got in, but then in order to perform in the main stage show, you had to kind of get in line. Like if someone was out or they were sick, there was this kind of pecking order of who they would call to be in the main stage show. And I was way at the bottom of it. You know, like 10 people had to – I basically had to bump them off mm-hmm. in order to get in. So at the time, Chicago City Limits would start their second act with um, a number of song parodies that dealt with various issues of the day. And I realized that not all the touring company members knew the choreography, knew the songs, knew everybody's part. And I thought, all right, this is my way in. So I got um, the the lyrics to all the songs, studied everybody's choreography. And at the time I was working as a high school teacher on my free periods, I would go into the auditorium and get on the stage and by memory work through the various parts so i knew everyone's parts so there was one week where someone was out and john and another guy andy daly lobbied for me to cover Mm -hmm. and once we got to running the the medley which was a a a significant part of the show they kind of looked at me in a resigned way and said all right which songs do you know like we'll alter tonight's performance based on what you know Mm -hmm. and i was able to say well i know everyone's part and i know every song Mm -hmm. And somehow that, then my phone rang, and I was able to get that stage time. Yeah. Um, so, 
you know, people have various opinions on song parodies and and so on. And uh, but when when they were done well, they were very entertaining, mm. and that was just part of my tremendous drive to get a part of it. And long story short, uh, eventually a number of people left the company, and I was able to earn a spot in the the main stage show and you know get those reps and yeah. and, and do it. How long were you with the company on main stage? I was in the company full time on the main stage uh, about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And after that, I had felt that um, I was a bit burned out um, and uh, had, and people joked at the time, a, a last show, mm-hmm. so to speak. And then it was around that time that I was already immersed in the Upright Citizens Brigade, which had come to town just a couple of years earlier. I was doing. Um, a one-man show there called O'Donologues, which is a group of monologues based on you know stories that had happened to me, and I was getting some uh, attention for for that. I know I mentioned George Carlin before. I had sent a tape of that show along with a nice note to his manager um, to seek representation. Uh, his name is Jerry Hamza, and a year later, a year later, he called me on the phone and said, "I watched your tape. I'd love to represent you." Wow. So that was like, holy moly, like George Carlin's manager wants to represent me. And he, he flew to New York and we met. And I remember Elvis Costello was in the lobby of the hotel he was staying at. And Elvis smiled at me. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was waiting until the elevator opened for one of my friends to come out and say, ha ha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. But here's this guy. And I, I knew it was him because I'd watched this Carlin biography. And... Um, we sat down and he was aiming to uh, map out a plan where I was going to do these HBO specials and such and, and to try and you know find ways to develop the one-man show aspect. So uh, that I thought was going to be the, the focus for a while. And by this time I'd left uh, teaching and was doing the one-man show anywhere I could. I was starting to do it at um, Gotham City Improv, mm-hmm. which had a nice small space – above a um, sushi place on 23rd Street. And it was one of those places where if there were like a dozen people in the audience, it felt kind of full. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting weekly reps there. And eventually we were able to um, book a black box at uh, the John Houseman Theater on 42nd Street. And Jerry sent a number of producers and such to come and see it. And my, my goal was to try and get the show booked in various colleges and such to make an income and to rep it before we were able to kind of try and showcase it at some small theater or something. And during the run of that show, I wasn't feeling well one day, and then the next day I felt worse. And then the next night I forgot my lines during the performance. And I remember thinking, this is kind of odd, uh, to forget lines based on a show of things that happen to you. Mm -hmm. So the next day I went to the doctor, and I was diagnosed with pneumonia, and had to cancel a sold-out weekend of uh, performances. So it, it was at that point that um, d- doing this on as a profession, um, the wheels kind of came off the wagon yeah. at that point. Um, uh, I know I took a bit of a detour from your question, but uh, pr- prior to that, I, I had re-entered the Chicago City Limits touring company mm-hmm. and acted as, as a player-director there for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that experience of that illness and such uh kind of made me reevaluate things yeah and i remember thinking okay i don't know if this is for me as a as a full-time profession Mm -hmm. so it was from there 
that I actually ended up finishing a master's and going back into into teaching. Was that like uh, kind of a sneaking thing under the surface for you that a career as a full-time entertainer may not have been exactly where your heart was? Or, or when you got pneumonia, was that sort of something that was a little more crushing for you? Like, uh, where, where were your ambitions at that point? Or were you, were you what, I guess what I'm asking is, were you riding just sort of the wave of continued success and, and, and sort of like letting that wave get bigger and bigger? Or did you have a very specific game plan in mind at that point of, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to have a, a career as a professional entertainer? Um, I remember, uh, it, it was probably all of the above there, mm-hmm. if, if that's possible. The, the, the teaching was always in the back of my mind. Yeah. Teaching, um, uh, uh, just to be clear, teaching uh, high school English. Yes, teaching, be, being an English teacher. Uh-huh. Um, uh, as far as the performing went, it was it was such a strong ambition, and I did, you know, think I was pretty good at it. And and to me, part of that proof was this guy's, this great comedian's manager saying like, "Hey, I want to represent you," mm-hmm. and. The feedback I was getting from I remember thinking a number of things were kind of rolling. You, you know what I mean? There were a number like there were a number of sources of income. There was the occasional show with Chicago City Limits, the occasional corporate show through Gotham City Improv, which which if you got enough of those would would cover your rent for mm-hmm. a number of months. Uh, it was in a number of commercials. Um, I was in a Comedy Central pilot that didn't get picked up. So I remember thinking, well, I've got my foot in at, at Upright Citizens Brigade. I've got it at Chicago City Limits. I've got this manager here. Um, but I think what really got me was the long stretches between not working. Mm-hmm. And I came to know of myself that just the way my mind works and my own personality, I'm, I'm, I'm better if I can work each day. Mm-hmm. And I would talk to people who are in it, you know, really for the long haul. And I have a great deal of admiration for them. Um, and they didn't seem to have that same particular need uh, that, that ended up outweighing you know, the other things. Yeah. So I think it was a combination of those two, but, but really learning that, that, that structured work and that meaningful work, I do feel teaching is, is meaningful work. You know, yeah. there's an old joke. Why are you a teacher? And people say, well, there's two reasons, July and August. And I'm always like, eh, you know, yeah. those are, that's a dumb joke. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's a long winded answer to your No, it's a good <laughs> answer. Question, I, was that, I hope I'm not too personal with this. Was that sort of painful for you or was it just kind of a moment of clarity of, of seeing of like, no, that this is how I work. This is how I'm at my best is, is working consistently and doing something meaningful. Like, was there a feeling of, well, I guess that dream is over or was it more of a thing of, of, Oh, I kind of know myself now. You know what I mean? Um, it was, it was definitely both. Um, I, uh, I, I, always feel um you know to go back i had i had studied uh i did one intensive summer with a, a company called atlantic theater company mm. which was founded by david mamet and the actor wh william h macy mm-hmm. and felicity huffman is another you know very well-known you know graduate of that school and such um who after I studied there actually wrote me a letter. We had corresponded for a bit and she wrote me a letter about how she had a little crush on me this summer that I was there and I huh. can't find the letter. <laughs> but um, but right. one, one thing I learned there that has stuck with me and that I apply to almost every situation is this concept that purpose equals process equals result. Mm-hmm. That the reason you're doing something will 
inform the way you go about it and will therefore inform the result mm-hmm. uh, that you have. So I, I, I guess, yeah, um, you know, it, it, was, it, it was very painful to have to stop and really start over again, you know, so to speak, at age 31. And it was, it was probably compounded by the illness. Mm-hmm. The, um, the untreated pneumonia was, was pretty heavy mm-hmm. without getting into too many details. Um, and I, I actually did think at one point, because I got back to teaching at a high school in, in Astoria, Queens, that, okay, the, maybe the one-man show, maybe the O'Donnellogs is going to be you know, where it's at as to, in terms of like a creative outlet, mm-hmm. which, which I've always felt compelled you know, to, to perform. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just there. And um, I remember thinking, all right, I'll, I'll keep this one-man show going and keep practicing and so on and so forth. And then I, I got another job at a school up in Westchester, and I moved up there. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, this is really a, a different switch. That's it, you know, for performing. I'm just going to do teaching full time. But I didn't realize how much the the, the pull to to do it um, existed. And uh, it was a tough time, about 18 months living in Westchester. And I, I didn't realize how much a part of me I still had to do it, even if it wasn't on a you know, quote unquote, professional level. Yeah. Um, and it was at that time that I was very fortunate to, to get involved at the magnet. Yeah. Um, because everyone I knew at UCB had moved out to LA. Mm-hmm. So this kind of second or third generation of UCB people were there now. And I remember thinking, okay, the, the ship's kind of passed here. Um, but I had been in, I'd known Armando, I was friends with Armando Diaz. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he invited me to have a performing opportunity at the magnet for which I'm, continually grateful um i want to go back for just a second because you were around for a really interesting moment uh um in new york city improv you were there like right at the cusp as ucb was making its first appearance and and really changing the whole landscape of comedy in new york can you talk a little bit about the differences in the culture between chicago city limits and their way of doing things and their their philosophy and goals versus what you were experiencing with early UCB? Because a lot of the people that you were coming up with, too, Andy Daly and Paul Shear, Tara Copeland, um, uh, were all equally active in the early stages of UCB. And also, you know, like their blood is in the mortar over there. So what, what, how, from your perspective, how did they begin changing what was going on in the city comedy-wise? Um, from my perspective, um, improvisation in New York City uh, you you had Chicago City Limits as the the main group that people knew about, mm-hmm. and they came to New York uh, from my understanding, in, you know, around seventy nine or eighty, mm-hmm. which is when the big stand up comedy boom uh, really began to happen in New York and in and in L A. Mm-hmm. So they they were in that mix, that original group of those people. Um, you know, Robin Williams would pop in and, and do a second act with them mm-hmm. when, when he was in town. And that short form performing um, was was not as, you know, people have been very critical of it, uh, but it, it was very skill building in my opinion. If you really break down those short form games, they are actually working on different skills that are going to help you do a straight up improvised scene with just a suggestion and no kind of artifice, you know, put upon it. Um, you had other groups as well um, in New York. There was one, I believe, called Freestyle Rep, mm-hmm. 
Uh, there's a guy named Tom Soder who ran a weekly improv jam, and there were other groups, Gotham City Improv, here and there. But Chicago City Limits, from what I could tell, seemed to be the big, you know, the big kahuna. Mm-hmm. They were also the one who paid if you got into the main company. They paid if you got into the main company. And gave you touring experience on the road. Gave you touring experience and life experience. You would be going to these towns and these theaters that you'd never have another reason to go to, yeah. really, unless your car broke down. Yeah. And you'd learn about the history of the theater and... And I, the tours were really great uh, in the sense that the town would come out and see you. And you really felt this sense of value of, wow, you know, this is a town that values the theater. And and you'd come and do the show um, and, and have that sense of community with the audience. And, and you were kind of the toast of the town. They'd have a party for you afterwards. And, and other gigs varied in different you know, <laughs> quality. I won't get into too many details. Um, but uh, basically – what what from my point of view, what happened was that I remember thinking I need to move to Chicago, and in a way, a part of Chicago moved to New York City, mm-hmm. and it was when I was talking with Paul Shear and John Telfer and Andy Daly, and they you know Telfer said I just saw the best group I've ever seen, and that caught my ear, and it was UCB mm-hmm. and the original UCB, the original before, UCB yeah. with various friends, Adam McKay. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the night I first saw it, Bill Cott was there. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of other people who went on to be, you know, staples now as, as writers for Conan and in films and so on. Uh, and uh, I had read Truth and Comedy, so I recognized a number of those members from the family mm-hmm. because they're pictured doing, interestingly enough, short form exercises as a means to learning the Herald. Mm-hmm. So we went and saw it. It was on a Sunday night at a, a performance space called Solo Arts Group, which was on 17th Street. Um, you took an elevator to like the sixth floor or you could stampede up the stairs to try and get a good seat. Mm-hmm. There were maybe 14 people in the audience and they did this kind of rambling long form show. And I remember thinking, oh, that was, you know, that was pretty interesting. I went the next week and I was completely blown away. Um they would do a get a suggestion. They would do a, a, a monologue opening, um, and the connections between the scenes and the speed of it. It was the best way I could describe it was. It was like those old kung fu movies where somebody shows up into the town and they have this style that the other fighters just can't comprehend. Mm-hmm. You know, and I grew up watching these things on like Channel Five at like <laughs> three o'clock on a Saturday. That, that's the best way I could describe it. And and I started taking classes with them. A lot of people did with a great deal of, um, you know, a, a good deal of comedy experience. They'd had a good deal of performing experience before taking a UCB class. Mm-hmm. And occasionally I would get asked, would you like to play with us for ASCAT, which was now really gaining steam. I mean, the place was packed. You had to like sit on the floor. And This is what, like 97? Uh, that's... Yeah, around that time, yeah. yeah. Might be a little off on that, but yeah. yeah. And when I was on stage, I was still kind of doing uh, what I interpret as a Chicago city limits scene, which at the time was more relationship-based. Mm-hmm. You and I are going to do a scene. Most likely we know each other. There's a problem in the scene. So, For instance, you're going to move away and you're going to dissolve our business partnership. And by the end of the scene, I've either decided to go with you we're going to split amicably or not 
or you're decided to stay. Would those? Sorry to interrupt you for a sec. Would those? Would that be something that you and the other actor would agree on beforehand and then improvise the scene, or that would just you would have that as sort of like a context in your mind that there we know that there's going to be some sort of issue that needs to be resolved between us? Because in in old school Chicago. Um, uh, they would agree beforehand backstage. This is the relationship. This is the problem to be solved. This is where we are. Then they would go do the scene. Was it like that or a little bit more modern? It was not like that. It was, it was more modern in the sense that you'd get a suggestion, usually of a location. Mm -hmm. I don't remember ever asking for a relationship Mm -hmm. as the suggestion. So, you know, where are we? You're at the library or something like that. And then someone would initiate and then someone else would either enter or be on stage. And you would discover that, who, what, where, kind of like a three-line scene. Mm -hmm. But the way I always saw it was, you know, um, why is this day stage worthy? Mm -hmm. Why why are we watching this scene? Well, it's because something different is happening, you know? Something's different in the relationship. So I had trained my ear to look for an inflection or, or some glance or some gesture or some sort of statement that the the other actor would make or that I would make based on what we had set up already that um, we refer to as the bomb in the scene, dropping the bomb mm-hmm. that's going to affect the relationship. And it was basically through having that kind of short story uh, structure, you know, introduction, exposition, uh, conflict, rising, climax, you know, to climax and then resolution mm-hmm. that you, there would very often be a game around that. You know, if it's short form, you know, for instance, a, a third person would ring a bell and every time they did that, you'd have to change the last thing that you said. Mm-hmm. If you had that relationship in place, you could then do the the scene. Um, the exception of one scene, and it was later on when um, UCB's influence, I think, had worked its way into Chicago city limits because you had people double dipping. They were in the touring company or they were in the main stage company. They were also doing shows at UCB. Uh, We would go back to doing these straight scenes, which the original group actually used to do. They would get one suggestion and just improvise a a scene. Mm -hmm. So it was very relationship based. My perception of UCB is they were focusing on uh, the idea of the game, some sort of pattern in the scene. I remember taking a class with Amy Poehler, and one of the first things that she said was, we don't care about these characters. We're looking for something different, a different kind of focus. And from what I learned from talking with people, the ASCAT show uh, was partly um, in reaction to uh, slow comedy, mm-hmm. the, the slow building of a scene. You had this group that wanted to distinguish themselves by going about 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult to to keep up with it while you were doing it. And those early Harold teams at UCB, you know, they would go to ASCAC. It was, it was incredible to watch. Um, but then they would try and emulate it. And I remember when uh, Armando uh, came and started teaching classes for UCB, I took one class with him. He slowed it down. Mm-hmm. And it was more about discovering the relationship and such. And I remember thinking, okay, this is at a pace where – we don't try to have to go as fast as UCB is. It was almost, it was like watching people juggle with knives. Yeah, you know they they really wanted to be in that express lane. Yeah. Um. So UCB early on was distinguishing itself by focusing on the game, heighten, 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 and edit and and make these connections between the scenes that you just you know it was it was marvelous to watch. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, did that inform your style of playing, or were you at that point fairly kind of developed as an improviser? Um, I I think that for for me, I would do my best to kind of gear shift. I saw them as two different types of performances. Um, for me, Chicago City Limits uh, was was more about. You know, it, it always said on the on the marquee comedy and improvisation, mm-hmm. and I know um, you know people have said, "Oh, it's 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 fake improv or, or or something." And and I guess from one point of view, if you're looking at it through the lens of long form improvisation, it it can come across as you know artificial, mm-hmm. but but to me, it, it, it was a job. Yeah. You know, it was okay. You're getting paid to do this. Yeah. Um, so you're either going to stop complaining about it and do the job or try and make whatever changes you can, you know, to satisfy your own creative, you know, needs and such w- yeah. within the show. Um, uh, so for me, it, it both one informed the other, yeah. um, you know, uh, with Chicago City Limits, there was a lot of directing at times. Uh, on how to present something or co- even even in rehearsing the medleys you know uh, you know the song parodies like singing out to the audience coming down stage mm-hmm. you know being aware of different you know my own theatrical training always helped me with that yeah. and I, I feel it but one one helped the other it one thing like UCB kind of and I wasn't here for this so I came along a little bit after they had already gotten fairly entrenched when I started playing um but it seems to me not only did they bring a really fast style of play, a really stripped down style of play, you just get right to the goods. Um, and so much of the pleasure is in just these unbelievable sense of interconnectedness with everything, but not having a piano on stage, having a very kind of, I don't know if punk rock is exactly the right thing, but, but that edgier attitude towards comedy where it is right on the brink of a kind of performance art. You know what I mean? Something that's a little bit more challenging, a little bit more in your face. It seems like that sort of left some of the older style of play feeling more old fashioned and feeling a little hokey because even Chicago city limits, uh, um, uh, replicated the old school Second City format of, of kind of politically oriented, satirical, relationship based sketch comedy interspersed with improvisation, improv in the latter act of the show, musical accompaniment, you know, um, and all that stuff for a while. Like I remember when I was first coming up, all of that and short form in general was considered very hokey and and was something that people really kind of um, shat on a lot in a w- way that I think was. Um, maybe like a little bit of like chip on your shoulder because one thing uh, eventually like I I worked for a little bit for Second City on one of the cruise ships and had to do a crash course on short form and and learn some musical stuff while doing that and it works you know if you're entertaining large crowds of people and and you're playing in front of tourists and families and that stuff works it's really great in a way that long form doesn't work you know um um. And so it was really interesting when you created made up musical. So let's flash forward a second. So, so you go up to Westchester to work, um, teaching, uh, you find that you're missing performing. Uh, so you come back into New York and you eventually hook up with Armando again in the early days of magnet. How did you create, or what was the impetus behind creating made up musical? Um, the, the made up musical, uh, 
started, I, I had been on something like six Harold teams at UCB. I was on their first Harold team, um, which I named right before our first performance. It was called Gigantic Man. Mm-hmm. And then I was on a number of teams and the teams either dissolved or there was one I was, I was taken off of and put on a couple of others. And I wasn't getting the same satisfaction out of performing on the Harold teams. I was hosting the Harold night and having fun doing that. But I remember thinking, I want to put something together where I feel, you know, it, it plays to my strengths and that we'd be able to get a run. And very much so, I wanted to perform again with um, uh, John Telfer, who uh, seemed to have taken a hiatus from performing. He had left Chicago City Limits years earlier and had done some stuff with Upright Citizens Brigade mm. and Frank Spitznagel, who mm. I met at Chicago City Limits and who really I really bonded with over there. Mm. Um, Frank is, uh, as anyone who has had the pleasure of hearing him play, and, and I've had the wonderful pleasure of working with him, is uh, a musical comedian. Um, Frank adds a dimension mm. to scenes uh, and, and, and just the joy to, um, to performing that I've – Never seen with any other accompanist, and I'm so lucky to be working with him. That's a really interesting way to describe him. I've never heard that before, but you're totally right. He he does jokes musically along with you. He adds so much to scenes that you're playing. And goes right back into the song. Uh, yeah. we would You would do a call and response with him where you'd kind of change the melody of a song. He'd echo it with his right hand and then go back. Yeah. I mean, there so many stories of, you know, if someone came out as a plumber, he'd start playing the Mario Brothers theme, just, yeah. just like that. Um, if there was a fight in a scene, he would play the fight music from the old Star Trek TV yeah. show. Yeah. If someone was getting angry, he would do that piano riff from The Incredible Hulk. Yeah. And I mean, it was just one thing after <laughs> another. I mean, his, he's, it's, it's like the weather. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you can take it for granted, but try, try sitting at a baseball game when it's raining right. and you realize how important the weather is. I mean, um, but to get back on track, Chicago City Limits would end its first act with a short musical piece. Mm-hmm. We would interview someone in the audience and ask if anything uh, had happened to them that was of note recently. Uh, and then we would go into about a 15-minute musical, which – you, you kind of had to learn how to do by osmosis. You had the luck of having Frank accompany you, but this vocabulary that now exists, this is a frontline tag song. This is a verse chorus song. This song, this is a trio, hadn't been put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was around 2001, 2002, when I wanted to try and put a musical show together, and there had been some interest in it. Uh, Jeff Richmond who was a director at Second City, is now married to Tina Fey, mm-hmm. came in and put together a big musical improv group at UCB that lasted like one night. And there were like 30 people involved. And then he left to go do some other project. So I remember thinking, wow, there is, there's an audience for this. And Frank had been mainly a Chicago City Limits guy. He hadn't yet come over into, you know, musical improv it really wasn't happening mm-hmm. in the city so the the early impetus was to do a show that added that other dimension to it the the music mm-hmm. um and to work with john and and frank so i brought together a group of people i think the original group was like nine people or so and 
asked UCB, who were so good to me. I mean, they they really I really got in there at the right time because they they let you do things, they let you fail, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas now I would imagine it's a much more competitive you know, um, process to get a show there. Yeah. Um, but they really let you do things and, you know, some of them weren't too crazy about musical improv, but you know, they said, yes. So, uh, put people together, held some rehearsals and, and didn't again, quite have the vocabulary for how songs worked, but was able to articulate certain things. And I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll do an interview because to me, um, to interview an audience member was a, uh, tribute to the 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 opening of Ask Cat or of a Harold. I always thought um, these openings that you had to do in the UCB shows, the best ones were the monologues. Mm-hmm. You'd have these others kind of like um, Paul Sills kind of uh, attempts at these kind of movement and transformative openings, but they, they didn't always connect to the Harold, and it, it, it kind of felt like this thing you had to do in mm-hmm. order to do your Harold. So I always thought if we were able to create this um, uh, interview frame of reference that the audience could kind of refer to during the show, um, and that term frame of reference I got from Brian McCann, who was another great you know Chicago like improv Jedi, mm-hmm. uh, th- then you'd, you'd be able to craft a narrative as well as games, um, you know. Out of that. Because the audience knows the in-joke that you're referencing. Yeah. Everybody in the room for this hour is part of the same in-joke based on this conversation you had with somebody at the top of the piece. So now anytime you reference it, whether it's in the parameters of the play world that you're creating or whether it's more of like a nod to the opening conversation, everybody gets exactly where you're coming from and you get them all on your side. Yes. And the, the hope was to do it in a way that was creative mm-hmm. and um, showed a, a degree of ingenuity. Um, you know, we're, we're not just redoing the interview. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've, I've heard some people have, have said that, uh, and I would refer them to me. We're, we're not just doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, we started... I would, I'll interrupt you for a second, too, and say that for anybody who who finds this challenging interviewing audiences or, or deconstructing an interview. Um, you're probably about the best person I've ever seen do this, have a conversation with an audience member at the top and extract ideas from that conversation. You're like the master of that. You're not only super engaging with people and, and really good at getting them to open up. You have an amazing brain for remembering every detail of what they have said and finding ways on your feet to put spins on those details so that it's not just replaying of the monologue. It, it really like, um, uh, uh, it's not something that I'm particularly great at either. So it's always like amazing to see you do it. Um, so anybody who's listening to this, go see John do this, see him practice the magic of it. Cause you can learn just a shitload from it. Well, that's means a lot to hear you say that, Lou. I, I'm a little taken aback, actually, at the moment, but th- thank you for that oh, yeah, compliment. Yeah. It is it is something I have tried to break down and and analyze and make it come across as if it's just sort of off the cuff. Yeah. Um, but I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so uh, the we had to give the show a name. Um, so there was a show called Sketch Show that was running at um, – uh, UCB, which by this point was at uh, 22nd Street and 7th Avenue. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, let's just call it musical. So we printed up cards and said, you're going to see something called musical. So then I got a phone call from 
a woman from Chicago named Nancy Walker who was doing a long-running show in Chicago called Musical the Musical. Mm -hmm. And she said, in our press kits, we refer to it as musical, and we already have that name. You know, we need you to change the name. So I told this to John Telfer, who had, you know, a quip where he said, all right, well, let's rename the show The Nancy Walker Experience. Uh Um, And then, you know, we didn't do that. And then I found out, you know, who she is. She's apparently this very influential person and everything. Um, so just spur of the moment, I said, well, let's call it the made-up musical. And, you know, you could argue, well, they're all made up. Um, but it, it, something about it phonetically seemed right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had a run with a number of people um, at the um, UCB. And it was just getting going when one night uh, we warmed up and we went to this cafe that used to be across uh, 7th Avenue and came back, and we were told there was no show that night because of a fire code violation. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, okay, this will be done by next week. Well, it turns out they had to shut down the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so UCB operated out of uh, a theater down the street, and then the people in the show left. They either went down to work in, in Florida, or they moved to L.A., or they were doing other projects. And so the show... Before it could, it was just starting to get some, you know, some traction. That was it. Mm-hmm. So other other than one or two little one-off performances here and there, um, it didn't it didn't happen again. It was something I'd always wanted to really do and and develop. Uh, and I had the opportunity to do it uh, about seven and a half years ago at uh, the Magnet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also had a very strong um, urge to introduce frank to that long form world i don't believe he was quite uh availed that's my number the right world but the they, they weren't aware of him yeah and i remember thinking this is something that could really you know that could really happen yeah. and so the, the the theater was very um uh supportive of it um i put together a, a cast of people i'd worked with before um and we, there was a little bit of a scheduling issue going on. So we did some shows at Gotham City Improv in the, the December before we started. I think our first night was January 21st is the night that's mm-hmm. sticking in my head. And it was kind of up and down in terms of attendance. It wasn't totally quite sticking. There was something that wasn't quite coming together yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was one night in particular when um, a bunch of people bailed on the show to the point where it was just going to be me. And I, I even think Frank might've been out. I don't quite remember. And I remember thinking like, Oh, well this is going to be it. And then there was one person who I just called, I called everyone I knew mm-hmm. who came in and did a, a show with me. I think we did 35 minutes. And I remember thinking I'd, I'd been abandoned and that this was a sign of like, all right, this show isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the strangest thing happened at the end of the show Armando came onto the stage and said, "Okay, we've got a gift for John." Uh, I remember this. I was there that night, and it was a it was a framed fight card of my grandfather Frank Fulham, yeah. who was a professional fighter at one point. And my best friend found it, got it framed, and a bunch of people pitched in. And I I don't remember. I think I was going through a rough time. And my buddy just got this thing to me, and it was such an odd experience because I was feeling very down that. 
the cast wasn't as connected to the show mm-hmm. at the time or that people had these conflicts or this person was sick. And then I'm being given this gift at the end of it. It was odd evening. Mm-hmm. But I remember being very determined to get it going. I, I knew there was something good here. Yeah. And then um, Tara Copeland, uh, I believe, came up with the idea to put together a musical improv curriculum mm-hmm. at the Magnet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I met with her and with Frank and Armando. We went to some BBQ place in the in Midtown, um, and uh, she outlined it. And then the classes started to happen, and they were they were going, I think, pretty well. And then something happened where suddenly it was like a landslide, mm-hmm. um, and people were coming to see the show. They were exploring this wonderful dimension of music that add so much to life in general, let alone theater. Um, and then it was kind of, you know, off and running. And we've had, you know, several cast changes throughout the time um, at the Magnet. But we just very fortunate to just keep finding people who have a passion for it and, and who love it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's basically been, been Frank and I as the consistent ones yeah. uh, throughout. Yeah. Uh, it. it it's interesting because, um, like, all of the early people who were involved in kind of establishing uh, the systems in place that have created this sort of musical improv movement all came through the early made-up musical and Tara and Eliza Skinner and Michael Martin. Um, uh, but it sort of seems to me that, like, oh, the big thing that was really, like, the introduction of Frank to a world that we're not really aware of his existence in a world that we're very used to that bare bones stripped down approach of long form improv where music isn't a part of it. Music is kind of old fashioned. Um, uh, there's like a chemistry cause Frank has become the kind of constant factor through Frank. Now all these other accompanists have really developed a beautiful vocabulary to become great, uh, improvisational accompanist. Um, but that's sort of like the core of like the entire movement starting. Now, one thing that I want to say is like, um, there is a difference for me between the made up musical and a lot of other musical shows. And, and I think it has to do with a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, a strong sense of presentation, being so steeped in what you took from the short form days and the Chicago city limit days, because it, you, the way that you do that show and the way that you think as a performer, there's a very kind of classic show business sensibility to it. Um, you in particular have one of the fastest brains I've ever seen on stage. And it's like a real pleasure to get to improvise with you because it's just lightning speed. Um, and you're not only like really fast on your feet and a really terrific improviser, but you're an incredible entertainer. You know how to keep a scene moving forward while creating three dozen jokes that are working on six different levels, um, and singing a song while you're doing it. And, and you present the show in that way too. There's a very, I think of you as an extremely studied improviser. You study audiences, you study other performers. You really have an amazing gift for analyzing it and breaking it down into what's necessary to put on a good show. Am I, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what is going through your mind when you are on stage? How are you thinking about how to keep a show alive and entertaining and interesting for people? Um, well, again, I'm I'm taken aback at these uh, <laughs> compliments. Thank you. Um, and again, coming from a, I have a great deal of admiration for for you. So to to hear that is very um, is very kind of you to say, and I, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
Um, what was the question again? Sorry. What's going on? <laughs> I, so for me, it's when I watch you play, there's just a sense of presentation that I don't see very often in other improvisers. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's something a little old school about you in a way that's really great in, in sort of like a classical showbiz kind of way. You're putting on a show. You know, uh, um, in a way, you blend a lot of the best of both of those worlds of the kind of speed and smarts that came with the long form movement. But you also blend that way of we're putting on entertainment. Blocking is important. Movement is important. How we're talking to an audience is important. Where is your mind at when you're thinking about putting on a show? What are your priorities? What what? Or maybe another way of thinking about that is what do you want the audience to be taking away from performance? Um, I I think the 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 number one priority is that the audience understands what is going on. If you look at theater in general. You have this voyeuristic situation set up. You have the uh, members of the community who are the audience who are sitting to watch the presentation that's on stage. The lights are off. They're not really the focus. The focus is lit up, often raised above them. And you have these performers coming out who I've always seen as members of the society who have made the choice to say, okay, I will get out there. I will reveal vulnerabilities for the good of the community so that the community can take something away from it. Mm -hmm. It is to some a a very scary thing to do. Getting up in front of a uh, a group will will set off all sorts of fight or flight mechanisms in in people. But the people that choose to do that I have I have great admiration for because there's some social value of it. I I I'm assuming we are the only species that does this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I guess I, I have a number of of things that I hope that the audience will take away from it. I know we were talking a little earlier about um, Joseph Campbell, who in The Power of Myth said that you know he doesn't think people are uh, looking for the meaning of life. They're looking for an experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. And to me, with the made-up musical and with performing, it's that, that connection. Um, some sort of celebration of life or some insight about life or some moment of laughter or some moment of, of pathos that makes us feel uh, connected, makes mm-hmm. us feel present, makes us feel in the room, mm-hmm. you know, the joy of being alive. Uh, in terms of entertainment, um, I've always felt that, you know, the, the audience is, at least with, with made-up musical, they're, they're, they're hoping to come and see something that's uh, – well presented in terms of the story, in terms of the music, but that is also funny. Mm-hmm. So I do, um, I, I do look at shows very often in terms of um, tempo. There's a, there's an outside in approach, or you know what what would the narrative need now? I can't quite explain it, but there's times in the show. There's a device we often use where we'll do a flashback to something that happened early in a character's life, and it can often result in some kind of medley or which which adds some sort of variety to just sort of the two person presentation in a in a scene mm-hmm. um, i've i've always tried to have have an eye on that what does this look like from the audience's point of view which at times i do struggle with because i think that you know there are some people who are so focused on what they would probably call the artistic side of it mm-hmm. 
uh, that that's more the focus and whether or not the show is funny or not is something, you know, is, is, is something different. Yeah. Um, but for me, uh, it's always a work in progress. I, I try not to make choices that are just, you know, jokey, so to speak. Um, you know, it happens. Uh, but I, I try and focus on, okay, what is, what's the bigger picture here? What is this interview really about? You know, um, what is, what is interesting about this particular narrative that the audience member has given us and, and how can we enhance it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the benefits of improvisation is that in the case of the made up musical, we'll, we'll do a group number at the top, but then you'll have two people on the stage usually and everyone else watching it and looking in. And it's almost like the old, um, I'm dating myself with the old Clash of the Titans movie mm-hmm. where the, you know, Zeus and the rest of them are basically looking at these clay figures and sort of manipulating them, yeah. so to speak. So yeah. I feel like when you can remove yourself from the reality of the scene, you can watch it and and just sort of think, okay, what what character would be an antagonist to this character? Mm-hmm. What what would be interesting charm characters, so to speak, kind of like the Marx Brothers to come in and not necessarily have a direct effect on the plot, but um, you know, to come in and, and, and enhance things. What's, what's an interesting concept? It, it's sort of hard to uh, explain, but I've always felt, you know, the, the audience can't hear you if you're on the backstage wall. Why would you create, you know, an extra 12 feet between you and the audience? Mm-hmm. And, and very often when I see performers doing that, because I know I've felt that, I feel like they're not as confident in their idea. Mm-hmm. So they'll kind of back away and then they're all the way upstage. So I, I try and tell people, um, you know, face the fear. If you're not confident in a choice, go ahead and take a step toward the audience. Yeah. Just go for it, you yeah. know. Um, and I guess it's that that impulse that, you know, the audience is in darkness. You're in the light. You're trying to communicate something to the audience, whether it's a story, some insight, or it's funny, or it's not. They need to hear it. Yeah. So that, and I think... You know, I've just always looked at kind of that outside-in approach as a performer. Like, you know, I, I was always told, wear your character like a hat, you know. Um, so so I'm sort of outside of myself, if that makes any sense, yeah. during the show. And yeah. while I'm on stage, part of me is thinking, like, how does this look? What's the the pacing like right now? Visually, you know, what would what would benefit the story yeah. and such? There are people who are outside of, of their performance and... and that's a form of detachment and it's a form of not committing to what they're doing. You do it in a way where it, you're just sort of a consummate showman. You always, and it's one of the things that I really enjoy about playing with you too, is that you always have an eye on the whole event, not just what's happening on stage right now, but you're kind of watching the audience from the sideline and, and like you're aware of everything that's going on in the room and you're helping to engineer that to make it the most satisfying, clearest story for everybody, which never feels like a lack of commitment. It feels like a very classic kind of comedy to me. I don't know a a better way to express it. It, Showmanship in the best way possible. You know what I mean? Like you're getting a full rounded experience. I want to ask one more thing really quick. Uh, Um, just to go back for a second uh, of kind of finding your calling as a teacher and you teach, what's the age group that you teach English to? I teach uh, seventh grade yeah. language arts, which was called English when we went to school and yeah. now it's called English language arts, whatever that is. I'll take <laughs> so. it either way. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I'm really curious about, 
uh, um, playing a dual role of being a great comedian and of also being a teacher. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Because to me, instinctively, I see like a contrast between those two roles. In a way, like the comedian and the authority figure, the comedian and the person who's trying to improve you are on antithetical sides. There's always that clash between the authority and the person who's sort of undercutting that sense of authority. Where I, in my mind at least, there's overlap between those two, I think, is that really great comedians are also trying to get you to see see the world from a different perspective. And I think really great teachers are trying to do that too. Um, so I'm just curious for you of, of what is that like straddling both of these worlds of being the two things at once, being both the authority and the adult in the room and also being like a master improviser, a master comedian. Um, well, it's, it's a very active process and it will depend very much upon uh, the particular class that you're in front of. Uh, I've found classes will take on their own sort of, group personality as well as the individuals uh, in that class. So there are, you know, each year there, there seems to be that one group, you know, knock on wood, that there's just something that clicks. There's some kind of chemistry between the teacher and the class as a whole that the class seems to understand the boundaries between, okay, we're, we're working on this. We're, we're doing it in a way that's humorous and, and memorable because people tend to remember those experiences and, and such. Um, so, you know, for instance, I have a song that teaches the rules of subject verb agreement and it's to the tune of MacArthur Park, mm-hmm. you know, made infamous by Richard Harris mm-hmm. in the 70s and such. Um, you know, I have students, I, the middle school is connected to the high school. They're in 11th grade. They tell me they still remember these things and that it actually helps them out. Yeah. Um, then you, you have other classes who you realize, okay, this group needs more of a of a structure maybe I'll do a little less you know they 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 are requiring me to let them know the boundaries today point a and and point b um and sometimes we'll get overly stimulated by something that's that's funny and then that that could be a distraction to the learning process that also needs to mm-hmm. take place um it's not a captive audience and you know just me standing up there telling jokes and such but i i do have a reputation at the school as, oh, you, you know, it's it's enjoyable, or or th- there is also that that listening element, you know, um, where you really listen to what the kids say and try and let them sort of shape the direction of the class, if if that makes any yeah um, any sense. Um, I do try and pri- provide materials that are humorous and that are lively. If you look at a lot of middle school literature, a lot of it is this depressing coming of age stuff. Yeah. And the kids really appreciate it. And they, they, I, I just took a grad course the last week. And one of the things that they want in a teacher is, is a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that that's a, a daily process. It depends on the kids coming into the room. It's almost like an audience. Like who, who's there in front of you and trying to get into the moment and understanding, you know, what, what will work to that objective. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's an objective on the board each day. You know, today we have to be able to identify the difference between, you know, common nouns and proper nouns, for instance. So how how we get there, there's any number of ways to do it. Um, as long as the kid can do it by the end of the class mm-hmm. or by the end of the week or however long it takes, um, I find that uh, the performing um, background definitely helps with with presentation, uh, there's actually when you mentioned the interview with the made-up musical, I'm actually using some teacher techniques that I learned in order to do the interview. 
um, especially at the end, there's a teaching technique called closure, where at the end of a class you'll review what um, you did that day in class so that it sticks with the kids. You know, you can't just send them to the next class. You've mm-hmm. got to have them sort of let you know what they got out of the class that day. So at, at the end of the interview, I'll, I'll do like a quick recap. That's as much for me as it is for the other players on stage as well as for the audience. Um, I hope that answers the question yeah. to some extent. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about it because, it, at least in my mind, there does seem to be sort of a parallel to the way that you're looking at a theatrical event and the way that you're looking at a classroom. You have the objective in mind. You know sort of what needs to be done. But you're also being very attentive and very mindful of where the attention is in the room right now and what the needs are of these people and helping to kind of direct them towards your goals. Is yeah. that about Yeah. I, I yeah I would I would I would say so yeah and and it's in any situation in in life there's there's a there's an objective here you know what are you going to do in order what tools will you use in order to to get there yeah um, that's also a concept I learned with Atlantic Theater you yeah. know like what's your character trying to do okay what tools will they use to get it right. from the other person yeah and well, such what do you love about teaching um the there's a book. I think we were talking about this earlier. Those listening, we had a great conversation earlier. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's we, a, <laughs> we had like an hour and 45-minute conversation we, we before met, the podcast. We met on the train. Yeah. We covered a lot. <laughs> um, there's a book called The Primal Teen, and it's about development of the brain in, um, in teenagers. And the psychologists um, describe, especially in middle school, the rate of development that the students are undergoing in their brain as a, as a state of exuberance that the brain is, it's almost like fireworks, mm-hmm. the amount of connections and such that's being made. And that's always reminded me of improvisation. I, I saw a recorded monologue by Del Close about how improvisation is like that. He called it the most ephemeral of art forms where it's like a fireworks show and then it's gone, you know, and, and this is a time in the students' lives where you, you, you get to witness that you, you, you get to be there while they're in that wonderful stage and so often challenging stage and stuff and, and, and try to be, you know, a means of support there for them. But, but again, to, to, to have that connection and, and I, I love the subject matter. Um, I have such strong memories of that age and I, I hope that I'm able to communicate to the students that I, I've been there, I, I get it. But I'm, but I'm also not assuming, you know, one of the things I think adults shouldn't do is, is just assume they understand the kid's problem, you know, mm-hmm. let, let the kid talk and such. Um, but that, that connection with the students and feeling that you're doing meaningful work um, each day, uh, you know, it's hard to have it with everybody. Um, but I, I love that, that, like I said, writing and, and reading and, and such, um, you know, it's it's so – uniquely human and s- such a wonderful thing to take a part of and to try and expose students to different types of reading and such and then watch them just sort of take off and, and run with it. Yeah. When you see someone's imagination really kind of like perk up when they're reading something wonderful, that reminds me sort of of what you're saying of just kind of that experience of being alive, of all being in a room together. There's something kind of like vibrant about a bunch of people all collectively having the same imaginative experience together. And it's almost like you were saying earlier today about like the way that like a fish in water doesn't know that it's in water. Well, that like 
in a way we're kind of like so permeated by being alive that you don't even recognize that you're alive until you have to kind of like see it reflected back to you in a story or or whether it be you know a theatrical story or a written story that it just kind of lends something really sort of beautiful and warm and lovely that calls your attention to the fact that that is the kind of substance that we're swimming through i don't know if that makes any sense it makes complete sense to me there was uh there is a brilliant uh one woman show the search for signs of intelligent life in the yeah. universe yeah. Uh, performed by lily tomlin written by jane wagner uh 10 years ago maybe she did it again yeah. in new york city i loved it so much as i saw it twice and the concept is basically that these aliens have contacted um, a homeless transient woman uh, to sort of, I guess, interview her about different facets of life. And it allows Lily Tomlin to play a variety of different characters. And there's this one piece about the women's movement in the second act that is a, a piece unto itself. But at the end, um, the uh, one of the characters has somehow taken – the aliens to a show, to a theatrical performance. And um, I'm going to get this wrong, but the concept will be there. The aliens spent the entire time looking at the audience, mm-hmm. laughing or crying or being totally focused. And the last line, and, and then the character, I think, asks the aliens, why were you looking at the audience? And the line is something along the lines of, you know, the show was okay. The audience was art. So just the fact that the group would gather together like that to, like you say, see something reflected back, you know, to them. To me, it's that experience of of being alive, and you know, like Joseph Campbell said, you know, follow your bliss. You know, for for people who love to bake, it's that. You know, um, for people like us, it's you know, it's just performing, and to have a supportive platform to do it. You know, so far at the Magnetum. Very, very, um, very, very proud of that. John O'Donnell, thank you for talking, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, it was a real pleasure. Lou, I yeah. really appreciate it. Uh, come see John O'Donnell and friends at the Made Up Musical Fridays at 10 p.m. at the Magnet Theater. Uh, this has been the Magnet Podcast. Uh, huge thank you to Grant Goldberg, our engineer, and to you guys for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show. Uh, um, please look us up. Find out more about who we are and what we do. Magnettheater.com is that website. Uh, I've been Lewis Kornfeld. Thanks again for listening, gang. See you soon. All right. Bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. 